morning, Grace Chapel. So good to see you today, really is. Uh, it's going to be a beautiful day. It's going to be a little crisp, but uh, it's the fall in Michigan, so that's what's coming. Have any of you been able to go out and just take in nature over the last week, get to see the, the colors and all that stuff? Awesome. I didn't, but uh, I hope to. I hope to. Maybe today. Could be today. Last week, we began the message with... Uh, a question. It's Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Remember, that's where we are. And the question was, do you consider yourself to be humble? And it was pretty introspective. And as we went through the message for the day from, from Jesus, he cleared all that up for us, all right? Put us, put us where, we, where we need to be. So let's begin this week's continuing journey through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount with this question. <laughs> do you consider yourself to be a hypocrite? Nobody's putting their hand up. That's good. Well, maybe that's a good thing. But uh, Jesus called the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his days, his day, hypocrites, a lot. It came out over and over and over again. And he described last week, as we went through that portion of the sermon on prayer, he described their prayers as hypocritical. So Jesus is going to build on that point this week as we continue on in his message, and he's going to reveal that hypocrisy, as, as deadly and as, as terrible as it is for, with you and I and others in our, in our society, it's not the only sin to avoid when you're praying, when you're praying to God that we might fall in the trap of. So listen to verse 7. And when you pray, so he's going to give an illustration now of what he's been talking about, and that's where we're going to be today with his illustration. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do. Who's he talking to on, on the sermon? All the, the peasants from, what, what nationality are they? They're Jews. And so who do they consider to be dogs? Gentiles. So he's comparing the prayer of Gentiles to what they might do themselves. And he says, by the way, what are we, most of us here? We're Gentiles. Okay. Do not pray and heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Another translation has it, do not babble repetitiously. <laughs> Have you ever heard that? Babbling repetitiously. For they think, this is why they do it, they think they'll be heard for their many words. Verse 8, do not be like them. Don't do that. There's a temptation to do that. Some of us do it when we pray for our food and we're thankful. We just say the same thing and we're not even thinking about it. But, but don't do that. Don't be like them. Why? Because your Father, your Father in heaven knows what you need before you even ask Him. Meaningless and mechanical words are not what God desires from we His disciples. Hypocrisy was the folly of the Pharisees. Empty, long phrases is the folly of the Gentiles. So hypocrisy, let's review, that's the misuse of the purpose of prayer. Why God designed it and allows you and I to communicate with him at any time, at any place, doesn't matter where we are or what we're up, up against, we can pray. And he says, don't be hypocritical, don't divert the glory due God to bring glory to yourself by letting other people see, oh man, I they can really pray. They're amazing. Verbosity is the misuse of the very nature of prayer. That's where Jesus is going to go now. It's degrading it from this intense personal communication that you 
can have with God based on your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. His death on the cross provides this, and we reduce it to this mere recitation, this repetition of certain words. How many of you in your walk right now, like currently, pray the Lord's Prayer? Okay, just a few. That's what I thought. That's what I figured. Just a few of you actually pray the Lord's Prayer. How many of you in this room today, at some point in your life, prayed the Lord's Prayer? Yeah, pretty much a lot of you. Yeah, you prayed the Lord's Prayer or, or parts of it. Let me ask you a question. Did you recite it? Did you attempt to get it perfect? You know, word for word, the way that your translation that you have in English has it laid down. Thinking about that, thinking about what comes next. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm praying about the debts right now, but what comes next? What's the next line? Were you pausing to consider each part of that prayer so that you were telling God, this is what this means to me. This is how it applies to me. This is what I think of you. I really do. And humbly saying the prayer from your heart. Did you, did you notice, like we're going to get to it in a second, but most of you know it. Did you notice it's a really short prayer? I mean, it is. I mean, it's like, bang, you're in and you're out. But that's not the point, is it? Pagan religions, uh, then and, and even today, tend to think that their god, little g, or their gods, um, could be bludgeoned into doing what it is you were asking the longer you prayed and the harder you prayed. And in some religions, the more you cut yourself or, or, or how, many, how far you walked on your knees. It's, it's all, all kinds of stuff. And unfortunately, for many Jews in Jesus' day, he was seeing this in, in, in the worship in the synagogues and on the street corners and in the temple. They shared the same conviction. One of the rabbis of the day, his name was Rabbi Levi. And here's what he said. Whoever is long in prayer is heard. What's the insinuation? If you're short in prayer, you're not going to be heard. And if you're a religious person in a particular religion and one of the leaders is saying this, what? You're probably going to do that. And you're going to add on extra lines. And I, I think that this attitude is still with us today. It hasn't gone anywhere. Um, I happened to grow up in a church where long prayers were like every Sunday, like long and on and on. They were, they were a message in themselves. Like, like you get the message, you get the sermon of the day, then you got the prayer of the day, which was another message. Uh, it's not died in our present church circles. And would you agree that it's sometimes assumed, it probably never ever would be said out loud, but it's assumed that the longer your prayer the more it batters the doors of heaven, the more likely it is to get answered. Have you ever been in excruciating anxiety or pain or frustration and stuff was happening and you just got on your knees and you sensed, I, this has got to be a really long ordeal because this is serious. And I know that there is some of that that comes into play. Jesus explodes the myth of repetition. In verse 8, do not be like them. Prayer is not informing God about something that he doesn't know. Like we're bringing God up to date. 
Oh, like I had this, God, I had this conversation with Joe this afternoon, and what he said was, and it's like God's like, what? I was there. <laughs> I, I heard the conversation. Let's talk about it. You don't have to recount what, what went on. Prayer is not informing God of something he doesn't already know that's going on in our lives more than we know and realize that it's going on in our lives. It's not, it's not seeking God to do our will over his will. Prayer is the adoring worship, the adoring worship and, and, and submission of a, of a creature to its creator. That's one way to look at it. It's a disciple honoring his or her master. It's a son and a daughter showing their deep love and adoration for their father. Because you see, God knows. God cares. God is your Abba, Jesus says here. Your dear father. So he gives his citizens of the kingdom, of God's kingdom, this model prayer. And it's the way that you and I are told by Jesus himself that we are to deliver our petitions and our worship to, to our Father in heaven, to God. And he puts the prayer, he puts prayer in general into perspective. That's how I feel. And by the way, I sincerely believe that if you and I were practicing the first part of his sermon, the Beatitudes, if we were in the second section, if we were living according to the Spirit, of the Old Testament commands of God and not the letter of the law, that this kind of prayer we're about to pray and read would just flow out of us. Verse 9, Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed, holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Have you noticed that Jesus is always calling his disciples, his followers, to something higher than the world practices, to something higher than the world's ideas of what it is to be a success. It comes out in this prayer so, so vividly. Jesus emphasizes that Christian righteousness, doing the right things, being righteous before God and others, is greater because it's inward. It's not on the outside. That's how you and I judge, but it's something inside that God judges. A Christian love that you and I are supposed to be is broader because it's not just love for our friends and our family and the people in our church and our neighbor, but it's love for our enemies. And Christian prayer is deepful because it is sincere and it's thoughtful and it's not just blown out there with a bunch of repetitious words. Do you ever look at Paul's prayers? I know we do that occasionally as we, we go through our messages because they're so powerful. They're so right on. They're, they're in line with what Jesus is saying here. Paul prays, and, and he thanks God for every one of the people God has given him through salvation. Like, how long does that take? But he says he does that. Do you ever pray for, like, a ton of people by name, and you spend time doing that? 
Paul prayed for wisdom and knowledge and hope. He prayed for peace and unity. Does our country need peace and unity right now? So are we praying about it or are we just complaining about it? <laughs> are we just talking about it with each other or are we talking about it with God? Because that's, that's when it's going to change. Paul prayed for the strength of spiritual power. We pray for physical might. Paul prayed for faith in Jesus Christ. He prayed for growth in love that comes only from God. He prayed for righteousness and purity from God's people. He prayed for overflows of praise and thanksgiving to God and to God alone. And Paul prayed to fear God and honor the kings God has set up. How's your honoring going? So where have churches' prayers for these things gone? So today, religious Pharisees that Jesus is calling out here and contrasting with how you and I are supposed to live, they're far from dead, right? The accusation of hypocrisy has probably been leveled at you at some point in your walk. Maybe from your kids, maybe from a coworker, maybe from someone you're just in a conversation with and the topic gets to religion and they talk about, ah, I don't wouldn't go to church because it's just full of hypocrites. That's been leveled at all of us. That's us. You know, that's not the other churches. That's, that's here. So the accusations are there. When I was a student, student and college pastor in, in a couple other churches, it was one of the biggest complaints of the students. Hypocrisy. Why they were frustrated with religion, why they didn't want to come anymore, all kinds of reasons. And it was often leveled at their own parents. It was often leveled at the inconsistencies they saw in their parents' lives between church life and home life and work life. And every one of us can respond defensively. And we can say, I, I, I get it, all right, yeah, but everybody's a hypocrite, right? Hypocr hypocrisy is everywhere. No one is immune to its, to its temptation, and we often give in. But don't you think when you read the Sermon on the Mount and you see what Jesus is saying here, that it would be more humble, more in line with what he is, his message is to admit that we are, to admit that we have been, and just plain ask for forgiveness, to be humble about it instead of defensive, and to pray to God for the strength to do his will going forward. Why? Why would you do that? Jesus says in every one of the sections of this message, it's for God's reputation. It's about God. That you and I more accurately reflect Him. That we are the salt and light we talked about two weeks ago. See, it's possible that I came to church today, that you came to church today, um, for the same wrong-headed reasons that took some of the Pharisees in Jesus' day to the synagogue. Not primarily to worship God, but because it's, it's what you do on Sunday morning. It's the way I was raised. It's, it's what we do. I'd feel guilty if I didn't go. Um, I need to put in an appearance so people know I'm still connected. Uh, I need to put my mind at ease, you know, kind of confess all my sins and get it all taken care of and then go out for the week. Or, or maybe for some it's even just to gain a reputation for themselves. This is a righteous person. They're a good person. Do you know that it's possible when we gather together uh, through the week and even on Sunday to, to boast about our private devotions with God in the past week? 
You know, we don't need to bring it up in conversation, but we do. Why? Because we want people to know, I'm reading God's Word. Yeah, I'm good, right? I'm so good. And by the way, let me tell you what I read last week. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that because we encourage each other with God's Word. But I'm saying even in coming to church to worship and sharing what God is doing in our life and through us, in and through us with His Word, you can, you can get into a bragging, boastful way about that. And it can be a way to kind of, you know, protect yourself against any accusation that you're unrighteous. Any ulterior motive, Jesus says, is wrong. And here's the irony. Here's the irony of the whole thing. Salt and light does what? It exposes hypocrisy. And we're supposed to be salt and light. So how can we be hypocritical? Real salty salt. Bright, penetrating light. And any ulterior motive destroys. It destroys any ministry or service we might do. Paul tells us in Corinthians that it'll be burned up one day. And the only things that we we did out of love and true worship of God will remain. This is a real big deal he's talking about here. And he's at the point where you're actually, you're not living in front of other people. You're communicating with the creator of the universe. So so religion and charity, you know, that. It's a, it's, a, it's a big deal to get involved in giving to the poor and, and those all wonderful things, and we need to be better at that. But religion and charity can become kind of a, a display where we put on an exhibition for people. We make sure that they know what it is that we just did and what we just gave and how much we sacrifice. It's used in the media today to get attention for certain individuals maybe to get votes okay that's not going on i know but i'm just thinking it could happen to get money to get support you name it religion and charity can be used for that how can we pretend to be praising god when in reality we're concerned about what people think those two don't go together We strive so hard to be like other people. We work so hard at fitting in so that the world would be tolerant of us. So how then should Christians pray? Well, Jesus provides the model which we just read, and hopefully, as I read it, we kind of prayed it together, right? Jesus earlier suggested that when you pray this prayer, you should Enter a room and shut the door. Do you remember that from last week? Enter the room and shut the door. That's another way of Jesus to say, if you struggle with this, praying in public, because your mind is not on praying to God, it's on everything, all the distractions around you, Jesus said, do whatever you have to do so that that doesn't happen. And I would hazard a guess I'm not a betting man, but I'd hazard a guess that almost all of us in this room would struggle with that. We would struggle with that. And Jesus says, you've got to do everything you can to eliminate the hypocrisy. Close the door against distractions and disturbances. Shut out the prying eyes of people. Pray to your Father who is in secret like this. Verse 9. 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's the difference between praying like a Pharisee and praying like a Christian? Well, Jesus says, it's the kind of God you're praying to. Who are you praying to? See, other gods, small g, may demand rote memory and uh, mechanical incantations and certain locations where you have to go in order for it to be heard. I, I, there's there's a, just a great guy, this great guy, Christian, Christian man that I knew in the past, but he felt that he had to come to church to pray, to be heard, to be really heard by God. It's that kind of thing. The living, true God revealed in the flesh by the God-man, Jesus Christ, doesn't demand that. And Jesus told us to, literally, the Greek here is, our Father in the heavens, to address God that way. And that implies that we serve a personal God our Father in the heavens. C.S. Lewis had a well-known phrase when he talked about God that he is beyond personality. He's that big, he's that great, but he's certainly not less. It's that mystery about God. You know, there are today modern radical theologians who are trying to rewrite the book on God. And they're reconstructing the doctrine, the teaching about God. And they're focusing on depersonalizing him. Almost trying to bring him down to our level. He's this, he's this changing universal force. He's this energy that you can tap into. Uh, he's this universal will that's directing everything. It's behind the scenes. It's, it's this oneness, this great oneness that we all can be a part of. When you hear those kinds of phrases and words, run. Because <laughs> it's not compatible with his divine fatherhood as we find expressed by Jesus Christ himself. God is just as personal as you are and I am, and more so. He's loving. He's perfect love. He's not some ogre who terrifies us with hideous cruelty. He's not the kind of father we, we sometimes read about in the news, or maybe you've even had an autocrat, an adulterer, a drunkard. He's not like that. Those were the gods of the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Greeks and the Romans, and the gods of today. God fulfills the ideal, the perfect ideal of fatherhood by the way he lovingly cares for each one of us. And he does it patiently. And he does it in spite of how you and I screw up a lot. God is powerful. He's not only loving, but he's powerful. He's not just good, but he's great. The words here, in the heavens... That, Jesus isn't saying that's where God lives. It's not his location. It's about his authority and his power that he commands as the creator of all things. That's, what, that's who we're praying to. 
So God combines this idea of fatherly, amazing, perfect love every time with huge, ginormous power. And he does it perfectly, or, or should I say, he is it perfectly. Whatever his love directs, moves, and shapes, he's got the power to make it happen. That's the God we're praying to. Our Father in heaven also is not just, Jesus is not just concerned with the protocol. In which, so whenever you address God, you say, Our Father in heaven. And men bow and women curtsy. And we, He's not talking about protocol here. He's talking about the truth of who God really is. We've got to come to God with the right frame of mind and understand how precious and powerful and, and intimate prayer is to our Savior, to our God. It's always wise before you and I pray to spend some time thinking about, deliberately thinking about who God is. And the best place to do that is in the Bible is in the Word of God, which tells us who God is. That's the only place you're going to find truth. And then all the rest of the prayer that Jesus prays and that you and I will pray makes sense when we understand who God is. So let's look at three things in the, that the prayer says. First of all, our material need. This is pretty amazing, right? Right out of this amazing elevation and realizing who God is, it's about the here and now. Isn't that, I find that interesting staggering our material need what is it give us this day our daily bread how many of you like bread <laughs> right out of the oven with lots of butter yeah. give us this day our daily bread because who else can you go to as the provider does anybody in this room seriously think that you can rely on the government of any country to fairly and righteously provide your bread. I mean, because you are, you're fooled. I was going to call you a fool, but that wouldn't be nice. That would be more Proverbs, but we're in Matthew. Who can you put 100% confidence in to get the job done with equality and justice for all? Just God. Some of the early commentators, this is, this is, this is wild, I don't know if, you, you, if we all realize this, but for the first few hundred years of the church, many, many commentators couldn't believe that this is what Jesus really meant. That the, the, the very first request out of a follower's mouth was going to be for literal bread for their physical body. It seemed to them improper that we should so abruptly descend to mundane and material things about life. So what did they do? For hundreds of years, people in the church were taught that this is not what Jesus meant. They allegorized the whole sentence. It's got to be spiritual. It can't be about, like, actual bread. The early church fathers thought the reference was to the invisible bread of the Word of God. Give us this day your Word in the Bible. It's got to be that. 
And then later on, Jerome, he translated the, the Greek text into the Latin Vulgate, which became the Bible of the church. He went one step further. He took the word, the Greek word for daily, which is the Greek word for daily, daily bread, and he translated it with supersubstantial, supersubstantial. In other words, the supersubstantial bread would be communion, the bread that you take at communion. They just couldn't believe that Jesus would care, God would care about our daily needs. It wasn't until the down-to-earth, um, biblically-based reformers that the church got back on the road and we started to realize what Jesus was actually asking us to pray for. Calvin commented on all this nonsense for hundreds of years with this phrase, this is exceedingly absurd. That's how he handled it. Love it. Luther went one step further, and I really like this. He had the wisdom to see that the bread Jesus was referring to was physical, but it was also a symbol. Much like, like the bread we take at communion is a symbol, this bread is everything necessary for the preservation of this life, like food, a healthy body, good weather, a house, a home, a spouse, children, good government, and peace. That's our daily bread. I love that. So bread is an expression of our ultimate dependence on God. What better way to start a prayer after you've acknowledged who God is? Your complete, utter dependence on Him. We can't, no one can do this without you. Now remember, when you pray this, and I hope that you begin to ask God for your daily bread and mean all that when you do it, remember that God uses humans to accomplish His will on planet Earth. So when you pray that, give us this day our daily bread, don't be surprised if God points to you as the one who he wants to provide bread for someone else. So our material need. Now he gets to the spiritual need. Verse 12. And forgive us our debts. Or some have it transgressions, another just plain out says what it is, sins. Forgive us our debts. Forgiveness. How many of you enjoy being forgiven? Huh? How many of you enjoy forgiving others? Yeah, sometimes. Forgiveness is as indispensable to the nourishment and life and health of our souls, our spiritual souls, as bread is for our physical bodies. And sin is described here as a debt something we owe, something that requires some form of restitution, and if you can't pay it, there'll be a penalty, a punishment, because there's a debt that you owe, and you can't pay it, so... But only God can forgive sin. Jesus made that so obvious when, remember the man got led down through the roof of the house, and, and Jesus... Um, forgave him his sins and the Pharisees were like what? you can't do that because only they even knew only God can forgive sin and Jesus was like yeah that's right you guys are right on with that and debts require some form of restitution since God can only forgive sins when he forgives sins he drops the charges against you and I, forgiving the debt. 
And that's the grace and that's the mercy of our salvation. Those of us who have trust Jesus Christ as our Savior and, 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 and trust in his sacrifice on the cross to cover all our sin. But you and I are still tempted. It's a good chance we've all been tempted however long you've been awake uh, already. There's, something has happened. Something has come along. Something has got your attention. And there are times we give in to that temptation, temptation, temptation and we sin. So let's, since this is church, let's do a confessional this morning. And just by the raised hand, uh, how many of you are tempted and there are times when you sin? Yeah, see, if you don't put your hand up, you just sinned. So, do you just feel better to get that out, confess that before everybody? So, as Christians, we have this ongoing confessional in our lives until Jesus comes back. We have this ongoing repentance. We have this ongoing awareness of the follies and the sin that are in our life that we're so easily beset by. So we have this ongoing conversation with God about our debts, about our sin. And the addition of the words that Jesus puts here, as we also have forgiven our debtors, is huge. And we're not going to touch that until verses 14, 15. So we had our, we had our physical need, we had our spiritual need, and now Jesus ends off with our moral need. Verse 13, and lead us not into temptation. That's what we've just all been talking about but deliver us from evil. So, so I see lead here, and I see deliver here in this verse, and I think they should probably be understood as the negative and the positive regarding the same thing. We are all sinners. We all just admitted that. Nothing new. No surprise there. Our evil in our past is forgiven by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Our inherent sin nature, we are able to have victory over through the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells every true follower of Jesus Christ. And we have been forgiven. And don't you long for the day when sin's tyranny is gone for good? It's wiped out. It's clean. We have our new bodies. We, have, we, we see God as he is, and we know ourselves as we are, as he sees us. And Jesus is teaching us here in this prayer, in this particular section, just come clean. Quit playing a game with God, because you can't. He drills down to our very soul. He sees it all. Be honest before God and say something like, I desire God, to defeat the temptation of sin, and with your aid, Father, I want to be delivered from walking in it in the future. But there's two problems that I just want to hit real quickly, because I, I get these questions, and, and people ask these questions, and they certainly do when they don't believe that God's Word is God's Word, and they're trying to find fault with it, so here's one of them. And the one problem is, is that the Bible says that God does not, indeed cannot, tempt us with evil. So how could he lead us into temptation? That, that, that whole idea there. And some interpret it, well, it's not really temptation. Jesus is talking about testing. And you can do that with that Greek word. You can. Um, so 
God would never entice us to sin, but he does test our faith and character. And we went through Hebrews here just uh, probably about a year ago now. But, and, and we learned all that, so we know that that's true, and it is true, and it is possible here, but, but consider this as a better alternative for understanding where Jesus is going with this, this lead and deliver. Lead us not, and deliver us from play off each other. They, they, they go hand in hand. And the evil that Jesus is talking about here I believe it should be translated evil one because it is later on when Jesus says it of, of the devil in Matthew chapter 13, verse 9. It's translated the evil one. So in other words, Jesus is talking about the influence of the devil on this planet. Like we just sang about from Martin Luther's song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It's the devil who's in view, Satan, who from the very beginning with Adam and Eve, our ancestors, lies to us and he tempts us and he sets up a world system whereby it's so easily, easy to fall. And it's from him that we need to be rescued. Where has Jesus just been? This is the beginning of his ministry. First message. Where has Jesus just been for 40 days and 40 nights? He's been in the wilderness, fasting and praying, which he just told his disciples to do. And what happened to him in that moment? He was tempted by? What was one of the temptations? Turn the stones into bread. The second problem. The Bible says that temptations and trials are good for us. Because they strengthen our faith. James uh, 1.2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials and, and, and temptations. Like, like Consider it like joyful. <laughs> so if they're so beneficial, why should we pray not to be led into them? That's, that's the way some people look at that. But do you begin to see with this model prayer that Jesus is giving us, that it's more about overcoming temptation than avoiding it? That's what he's getting at. Come on, let's, let's be real. Can any of us avoid temptation in the real world that you and I live in? I would say no. You can't avoid temptation it's going to be in your face the moment you walk out of here. You may not even walk out of here and be tempted. One commentator paraphrased the whole request as this, and I thought it good enough that I'm going to share it with you. Heavenly Father, do not allow us to be led into temptation that it overwhelms us, but rescue us from the evil one. Without God... The evil one and all of his minions and assistants are too strong for us without God. You and I are too weak to stand against them. But our Heavenly Father will deliver us if we call on him with this kind of humility. James puts it so well in James chapter 4, 7 to 10. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. This is where it starts. Resist the devil, 
After what? After you've submitted yourself to God. And He will flee from you. Draw near to God. And He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. There's the whole repentance part. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and guess what? He will exalt you. So Jesus ends this model prayer with verse 14. And if, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. So does this mean that our forgiveness of other people who wrong us earns us the right to be forgiven by God? Okay, church. Yes or no? No. Yeah. Absolutely not. God forgives only the repentant. What was Jesus and John the Baptist's message coming into all this? Repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. And one of the chief evidences, one of the chief fruits that you and I have truly repented is the forgiving spirit we will have towards the offenders against us. Boy, is that missing in our country today. Once our eyes have been opened by God, not by man, once our eyes have been opened by God to see the enormity of our personal offense against our Creator, our amazing Heavenly Father, the injuries that are done to us and will be done to us by others really come down quite a few notches. But if we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of other people to us and we're so put out by that that we are ineffective in being salt and light in this planet, it proves that we have minimized our own offenses and consider ourselves better than we actually are. Can you forgive other people, friends and enemies? The main point of a parable Jesus gives to illustrate this prayer. It's later in Matthew uh, 18. And he shows in that prayer the disparity between what our master in heaven has done for us and how we treat other people and what they do to us. And you remember it's, the, it's, a, it's about the servant and he, he owes the master money and the master forgives him, doesn't throw him into debtor's prison, but says, you're good, wiped off, you're, you're, you're fine. So, and what did that servant do? Do you remember? He goes out and he takes the servants under his authority and demands repayment, and if they can't pay him, he throws them into prison. It's like, what? And Jesus concludes in verses 32 and 35 of Matthew 18. Then the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have shown mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. So also, Jesus says, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You read Jesus' parable here and you go, was this guy 
nuts? Like, is this what you do? And then my finger, my pointed finger, slowly curls back and points at me. Would you rise with me and let's pray before we continue to worship our Heavenly Father. Our Father in heaven, holy be your name. You are deserving of all our praise. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May we carry your light, may we be your salt. Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, we are so thankful. We have so much. And forgive us our our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.